Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. My guest this week is Vanessa Shakib, co-founder of Advancing Law for Animals. We will be speaking about litigation brought by Vanessa on behalf of the Missouri Alliance for Animal Legislation, as well as Stop Animal Exploitation Now, regarding two policies adopted by the USDA's animal care, by which they have kind of just basically avoided real enforcement of the Animal Welfare Act. What a shock. One is the or rather Orwellian named Teachable Moments Rule, also known as a violation of the Animal Welfare Act, and also the Self-Reporting Rule. You can imagine what that is. So a good deal of progress has been made here because of this litigation, and you're going to want to hear about it. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House. That is, of course, the not-for-profit entity that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount. And if you can't afford it right now, we totally understand. Our supporters always know that they are helping to provide animal-friendly media, not just for themselves, but to all of the others who maybe can't afford it right now. And we're so grateful for all of you. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. A couple of recent episodes that might be of interest include episode 584 with the amazing Anna Bradley, the executive director of Sentient Media, and episode 583 featuring Troy Vitese, who was a research fellow at Harvard, and he shared his thoughts on animals, neoliberalism, and Marxism. Really fascinating stuff. Okay, let's get to the interview. Vanessa Shakib co-founded and co-directs Advancing Law for Animals, which is a non-for-profit law firm that focuses on animal law, government accountability, and illegal business practices. There, she develops impact litigation to further the interests of animals exploited in research and industrial food production. And she will be joining me right after this. I want to tell you about an amazing service for anybody who's practicing animal law or interested in animal law. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. Published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, the Digest is a Brooks Institute service to the animal protection community. It can be like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work, but nevertheless want to stay aware of other actions, or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. Features include allowing you to compile updates by category, search by key terms, and each issue contains links to background materials that will orient the reader around that specific issue. There are weekly highlights as well as quarterly summaries. You can subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Vanessa. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you. And I want to hear about your firm, but let's let's hold off and talk about the case first. And then I really want to hear about your practice. This is starting off pretty basic. And I think most people who are listening are probably familiar with the Federal Animal Welfare Act. But for those who aren't or who aren't as familiar as they would like to be, can you just briefly describe what it does and who it covers? 
Of course. So the Federal Animal Welfare Act provides basic uh, standards of minimum care for animals in experimentation, animals in exhibition, so that covers roadside zoos, and animals that are bred, including puppy mills. And again, these are very minimum standards of care, uh, and they do not apply to, for example, rats and mice held for experimentation. If you really go into detail, that's a very good summary. And if you really go into detail, it gets it gets more complicated, but that that really sums it up. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the enforcement history because it's particularly important here. And and specifically to these two audits that you end up referring a lot to in, in this case. These audits are done by the inspector general of the actual USDA. And I've referred to them often in my uh, in my study of the Animal Welfare Act, and they're hugely important. And you refer specifically to one that was done in, in 2010 and one that was done in 2014. Can you just tell us the sort of things that these audits done by the government, I keep repeating that, <laughs> reveal about the enforcement of the Animal Welfare Act? Yeah. So as you mentioned, these are separate audits, but too long didn't read. They both say the same thing enforcement is ineffective. And when you ask about what's happening with the enforcement of the Animal Welfare Act, generally speaking, what we're seeing is a very disturbing trend that the USDA calls education over enforcement, but what you and I would call business over animals. And so the bottom line is we're seeing less and less enforcement and less and less citations. Yeah, and and these these audits really spell out specifically the, how poor the enforcement is. And I should uh, I, I should have asked you specifically. It is the USDA, sadly, that has not worked out that well that enforces the Animal Welfare Act. But what is the name of these specific agencies within the USDA who are in charge of this? Great question. That is APHIS Animal Care. So it's a subdivision, we might say, within the USDA. So animal care has its own department, essentially, within the USDA. Yeah, and I'd like to go into another little relevant history because this seems to me to be very important, but I'm not really sure of all of the timing and how this happens. So you can correct me. I'm wrong. Like, at some point, laws starting being passed in municipality. This is specifically about the puppy mill issue. Mm-hmm. Laws started being passed in municipalities and some states that actually started paying attention to enforcement and and using it, uh, using the the stuff that the USDA was u- was doing in a proactive way regarding sales of puppies. And and uh, can you talk a little bit about those laws and and uh, because I think that. As we'll see, they they really had an influence on how the USDA responded. Yeah, so thank you for pointing that out. So what you are referencing is actually key in the timeline of events giving rise to our lawsuit to the USDA. So if we back up a minute, we can begin this discussion with the 2010 USDA Office of Inspector General audit that you mentioned. And so that audit was finding that enforcement is ineffective against large-scale commercial breeders, what we call puppy mills. Now, as you can imagine, puppy mills are a big issue among the public at large. And so 
in response to this news of weak and under and ineffective enforcement, different states, as well as other localities, start passing anti-puppy mill legislation. And so these, of course, vary by jurisdiction, but they can do anything from ban the sale of dogs from puppy mills or prohibit sales from breeders with a certain threshold number of Animal Welfare Act violations or restrict sales from those breeders. So suddenly, while the USDA is ineffective in its enforcement, states are ramping up enforcement. And this is the context of our lawsuit because suddenly these breeders are saying, oh, wait, we've got to deal with this because we're facing these restrictions in states and localities in which we sell. It it really is amazing that (laughs) this, this kind of ended up being a problem because the USDA's failure to enforce became less comfortable for the industry because states were actually, and you would think that a government agency would be happy that states were using the information they had gathered about these situations that were in violation of the law to regulate puppy the stores where these animals are sold, but that was not the case. And actually, there was one USD action that is not the subject of your lawsuit, we've covered it before, that seemed also to be in response to these uh, actions by states and cities. And um, that was to hide the reports. Mm-hmm. Probably people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the fact that all of a sudden they disappeared from the website and nobody could find them anymore. And there was a lot of controversy about it. And I, I don't want to go through that whole sordid history because that's a complicated story that we've talked about before. But can you just tell us, I know they're back. I know the reports are back, but what is the exact current status of finding reports. If someone, a consumer or a state legislator or a store or whoever wants to find out about a regulated facility and their history of taking care of their animals, what can they now get from the USDA? What's back and and how do they get it? The USDA has an animal care public search tool, which is back and it's online. And so a user can go on and search for inspection reports, and also for something called teachable moments, which we can get into in a moment. Um, And our lawsuit has, and settlement has had the effect of changing the interface of the way that a lot of this information is displayed so that it is easier for users to understand. All right. So uh, that's one of the ways, but, but the other, which you referred to They also change, in addition to taking information off the website that might have been useful in enforcing these state laws, they also decided to create this, uh, these other ways of enforcing the law. And one of them, as you, as you mentioned, was the incredibly Orwellianly named teachable moments. And the other was self-reporting, which sound, that's not even Orwellian because you can tell just from the name self-reporting that there's a problem there. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So in addition to hiding the reports themselves, there's been this concerted effort basically to make the reports less accurate. Yeah. Let's first talk about the teachable moments. And I want to say before we talk about this that I looked up the term teachable moments on the web just to see how it's generally interpreted. And it's an educational term. And it usually just means a wonderful moment during the day 
that kind of surprisingly brings up an issue in which you could expand on something and help children understand it. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about here. What are we talking about? And where is this rule found? In order for the USDA to enforce the Animal Welfare Act, it relies on its inspectors. And so inspectors are individuals who go out and look at these facilities with licenses to hold animals. In order to so-called guide the inspector's um, visit to the facility, the USDA has published something called the Animal Welfare Inspection Guide. And inside that guide, there are um, specifics as to the self-reporting incentive as well as the teachable moments rule. And although the self-reporting incentive and the teachable moments rule are separate, they do have a law in common. And let's, let's talk about what that is. So generally speaking, an inspector has discretion as to whether or not to issue a citation of the Animal Welfare Act. But these rules strip the inspector of that discretion and in fact, prohibit the issuance of a citation under certain delineated circumstances. And those are the circumstances of both the self-reporting incentive and the teachable moments rule. And can you describe what each one is? And, and as you're pointing out, they have very similar reasons for being, but how do they differ? So the self-reporting incentive essentially offers a get-out-of-jail-free card to licensees. Now, let's back up for a moment and think about laboratories experimenting on animals. If those labs that experiment on animals receive taxpayer funds, they are required to report to the National Institutes of Health their violations of the Animal Welfare Act. Now, instead of the USDA similarly requiring self-reporting of these adverse events, the USDA adopted a very different strategy and said, hey, if you self-report this adverse event as a treat, we will prohibit an inspector from issuing a citation. And this is very, very problematic because if the self-reported event led to the injury or death of an animal, then of course, that licensee needs to be cited. So can you give us an example of some of the kind of things that were self-reported and that just went by the wayside rather than, than being enforced as violations of the act? I have an example for you, but my examples are limited because once that event is self-reported, it's not recorded in an inspection report. But one of our clients, Bob Baker of Missouri Alliance and Animal Legislation, had documents which explained an event where, due to some violation of a law, a zebra was able to escape from an enclosure at a roadside zoo and, due to the circumstances of that escape, died. And so the facility self-reported that event. And as a result of the self-reporting incentive, it was prohibited from receiving a citation. This is just crazy. It really is, as you point out, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. As long as you fess up, 
<laughs> like it's not in violation anymore. And that was going to be my next question. How do you know? I mean, thank God he was able to find out some because the very point here is that is to keep everybody from knowing that this ever happened. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the teachable moments. I, I just I just love the name of this role. It's just so awful. What is the teachable moments role? And when did it start being used? So we see the teachable moments rule cropping up at around 2014. And to give some context, based on the experience of our client, Missouri Alliance and Animal Legislation, the teachable moments rule arose specifically in response to state and local anti-puppy mill legislation. So circling back to what we discussed a few moments ago, all of a sudden we're seeing these state law prohibitions and restrictions. And so around 2014, puppy millers are expressing alarm and concern to the USDA saying, hey, we can't sell dogs or we're getting less money for the dogs. And so our client was present at some of these stakeholder meetings. And the response was, if you're having issues, call us. And let me just say, that's the response because the USDA positions licensees as customers. And so this is customer service. It's not animal welfare. Now, this being the overall backdrop, we see the emergence of the teachable moments rule. Now, the teachable moments rule is trickier than the self-reporting incentive because when you read the rule on its face, it it does not apply to instances which would impact animal welfare or cause noticeable pain or distress. But the issue with the teachable moments rule is that it has been misapplied by USDA inspectors. And so our other client, Stop Animal Exploitation Now, was diverting significant organizational resources to investigate the issuance of teachable moments and blow the whistle on times that it was misapplied. So in one example that we mentioned in our operative complaint, a laboratory violated the law with respect to a pig in surgery. And as a result of that violation, the pig died and the lab received a teachable moment. And so uh, on the face, based on the, the plain language of the teachable moments rule, that was a misapplication. We have two different issues here. The self-reporting incentive encompasses issues that impact animal welfare. Even if an event impacts animal welfare, the facility gets a get-out-of-jail-free card for self-reporting. By contrast, the teachable moments rule supposedly does not. It's supposedly for minor infractions, yet it is routinely misapplied by USDA inspectors. So these are the facts. And even with the teachable moments rule, I mean, I, I see no reason why a a violation, if it is de minimis, still can't go in the report. I mean, if it's made clear that it's de minimis, and which it would be, like, why are people not entitled to that information as well? So, yeah, as you said, well, the USDA has al it's always been problematic uh, or considered problematic that it's in charge of, of enforcement here because the USDA is appropriately meant to consider most of the people it works with as maybe not clients, but as people they're supposed to promote because we want to promote agriculture or at least sometimes, sometimes. But, you know, it, it, it has this kind of 
schizophrenic relationship to its regulations because it does want to pr- help farmers and, and its other kind of uh, licensees or, well, they're not really licensees, but people it regulates. Uh, and that should not be the case here where their main goal is to enforce to the benefit of animals. It should be the animals who it considers its customers, not the puppy mills and the labs. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> That's That's absolutely correct. And if you think about it, the USDA is charged with effectuating the Animal Welfare Act. So that's the Animal Welfare Act. It's not the Business Welfare Act. Totally. So in effectuating Congress's intent, it must be considering the welfare of animals, not of licensees. Now, you had mentioned with with regard to the uh, self-reporting rule that it was very hard to find the information you needed to show how this was being misapplied. Mm-hmm. Was that the same with the teachable moments rule? Was there any way to find out other than through your own your, and your clients' investigations, which have to be somewhat haphazard if they're not entitled to the information, that things that should have been listed as violations were being listed as as teachable moments and being left out of the reports? So it certainly creates more work for our clients who investigate and seek to offset illegality towards animals. What's interesting is uh, one of our plaintiffs in this case, Stop Animal Exploitation Now, was issuing FOIA requests to get all of these documents. And so a lot more was coming back for teachable moments than was coming back under the self-reporting incentive. Uh, And I'm not sure what to make of that, um, but that's what ended up being the case. So you were able to gather the information that you needed to pursue your lawsuit through FOIA? Exactly. Is it your opinion that the purpose of these rules is basically just to keep the number of violations down, not the number of violations down, but the number of reported violations down and just hide the truth? Correct. Well. Yeah, that's pretty depressing. So let's talk about the lawsuit. You've already mentioned your plaintiffs, but can you tell us a little bit more about each of them? And I mean, I've I've, I've certainly heard of saying, uh, I'm not familiar with the Missouri organization, but tell us about their missions and a little bit about their history. Yeah, so these are both animal watchdog organizations. SANE focuses on animals in laboratories and Mall Missouri Alliance and Animal Legislation is focusing on puppy mill issues. And so it's a great pairing because they both have a mission to end abuse towards different sorts of animals regulated under the Animal Welfare Act. And each of these kinds of animals has its own rich factual history. So for example, puppy mills have one OIG audit and animals and laboratories have a different OIG audit. So having both of these clients together and both of their experiences together really broadens the picture of what we're seeing in terms of enforcement, or should I say, lack of enforcement. Now, you were in federal court as you were suing the USDA, is that right? We were in federal court making a claim under the Administrative Procedures Act. And that was in D.C.? Yes. So tell us about your causes of action and the kind of relief you were seeking. We alleged that both of these provisions amount to illegally promulgated regulations, and we wanted them removed from the Animal Welfare Inspection Guide. And to unpack what that means, we have to take a step back and think about the process of how a law is made. 
And if I can have a moment, I'll walk through just super basic. Uh, while there is some variation in how laws are made, it's generally speaking, it works as follows. Congress passes a law and that law is broad. And so Congress may delegate to a relevant agency and say, hey, agency, fill in the gaps and promulgate regulations to effectuate our intent. So the federal agency comes along to write the regulations to give meaning to the act. But wait a minute, we have a problem here because federal agencies are not elected officials, but they're writing regulations. So as a check on agency power, these federal agencies need to put substantive regulations through something called notice and comment rulemaking. And that's when they take that proposed regulation, they make it public, they invite feedback from the public and other stakeholders, and then they decide whether to pass the regulation as described to alter it or to refrain from passing it. And so notice and comment rulemaking has a couple exceptions. And those exceptions are things like if a rule is a housekeeping procedure or if the rule is merely interpreted, interpretive of something already articulated in the law passed by Congress. And so our lawsuit basically says this. It says, hey, this self-reporting incentive and this teachable moments rule, these are substantive legislative rules because they impact legal rights and obligations from which consequences flow. And as a result, they should have underwent notice and comment rulemaking. It is illegal to simply slip them into a guidance document and circumvent that mandatory process. I have to say, this seems like a pretty strong argument you've got. These these were pretty substantive. But of course, you're in federal court. So just because you have a cause of action and just because it sounds pretty good doesn't mean you're you're in court because you still have to have constitutional standing. And I understand that you were seeking haven standing. And can you can you briefly? Oh, haven standing. It gives me such a headache. Can you kind of summarize uh, what haven standing is? Though I think a lot of our listeners are pretty familiar with it by now. But also what you have to show, which I think is still not a completely settled area. Generally speaking, in order to get into a court, a party has to have standing, and that's made up of three elements. Number one is an injury in fact. That's that concrete, particularized harm. Number two is causation. And number three is redressability. And so when we talk about that first element, which is an injury in fact, that's where Haven Standing comes into play when we're dealing with a nonprofit advocacy organization as a plaintiff. And the case law um, is very clear that when an advocacy organization diverts its resources to offset illegal conduct, that diversion amounts to an injury, in fact, for the purposes of the standing analysis. I think there were a few back and forths on this, correct me if I'm wrong. And and what did you actually end up showing about how these organizations had diverted their resources in order to show that these organizations were actually injured by this illegality because of what they had to do to fulfill their mission? Yeah, well, to paint this picture, 
Um, let's back up a step. We filed our lawsuit and the USDA filed a motion to dismiss, but that motion to to dismiss was not a facial challenge. It was a factual challenge. So had it been a facial challenge, the analysis would have been limited to the four corners of the pleading. But instead, it issued a factual challenge and itself cherry-picked documents from the administrative record in support of its position while denying both plaintiffs and the court, the benefit of the full record. And so since we had to deal with this factual challenge, it meant that we needed to, um, we needed to use evidence from outside of our operative complaint. So what ended up happening, and I didn't send you the totality of this, but all of our filings relevant to this together, including exhibits and declarations and our motion to compel the administrative record, this filing was about 1,000 pages. I'm really glad you didn't send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I didn't even know how it's so big. I would have had to transfer it <laughs> some confusing way. That was the amount of work that we did to brief this. But most importantly, that reflects the amount of work that our clients undertook to investigate and seek to offset this illegal conduct. And so this involves all sorts of things. It involves investigations. It involves um, trying to get media. It involves um, doing all sorts of things that they wouldn't otherwise have had to do in the absence of these illegalities. And so all of this factual development of the case, this this was based on their motion to dismiss. And was that specifically based on standing? Had they gotten to the merits in any way? So this was very interesting. So as we just said a moment ago, standing involves those three elements, the harm, the causation, and the redressability. In its motion to dismiss, the USDA stated that our plaintiffs lack standing and they challenged each element of standing. But at the same time said, but we're not going to get into the substance here because these rules aren't legislative. And so that put us in a, in a, a position that prejudiced our clients because if you want to talk about standing separate and apart from the merits, then you cannot argue things like causation and redressability because those are inextricably linked to that legislative rule analysis. And so while the USDA moved on what it purported to be very limited grounds, for us, it implicated our entire legal theory. And that's, again, why our filing was so robust. I did read through their their papers and and some of their arguments really struck me. So I'm just wondering if you could um, comment on them. But one that really struck me was, and they just trotted out every possible argument that there could be on standing. I mean, I think that they are really, really upset about uh, the development of, of Haven standing in this in this area and uh, the idea that they're going to have to be going into court. But this is the one that really struck me. They see, t- correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. They seem to be asserting that they have always failed to put things in inspection reports. So formalizing that just can't injure anyone because they could have left stuff out informally before. Yeah. So you're tapping into a larger argument, which is, hey, 
Enforcement is discretionary. And USDA inspectors have discretion as to whether or not they will issue a citation. And because inspectors have discretion, you have suffered no legal harm. And to which we respond, ding, 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 you are correct. Inspectors should have discretion to issue citations, but these illegal rules are substantive because they strip the inspectors of that discretion and instead mandate that inspectors cannot cite under certain parameters. And the prohibition of citation itself has significant financial benefits to business. I feel like they're almost getting at the argument or, or the supposition that I've always heard said and um, said by some people who have a fair amount of experience in the area, which I don't, that the inspectors are the best part of the USTA. They may not all be great and they may vary, but what really happens is even things that inspectors report end up getting uh, watered down at the uh, higher up level in the agency. And they almost seem to be trying to, by putting in this formalization of the fact that inspectors to have discretion is to take that discretion away from the inspectors so the inspectors can't say anything bad if they want to. Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky process. And another thing that's very interesting is that licensees have a right to appeal citations. That process of appeal is also set forth in the Animal Welfare Inspection Guide. And so we know that citations are significant and have a consequence if licensees have a right to appeal them. And so if we know that they're that significant that they can be appealed, we can also then say that shielding a licensee from a citation confers a benefit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So they made this standing argument and you responded with a thousand pages of evidence showing how it, it had impacted these organizations and they ha- it had to force them to divert resources. Am I right? The court did not actually get to that decision because you entered into settlement negotiations? Well, something happened in between, which was a first in my career, uh, which is that the party... so. Let me just say what was pending was defendant's motion to dismiss, and then we opposed the motion to dismiss, and we filed our own motion to compel the administrative record. After all those were on file, the parties jointly agreed to withdraw all pending motions. And what would your motion to compel have have compelled? So we filed a motion to compel the administrative record, and that is essentially all of the documents in the USDA's possession that bear upon the case. And so we had initially met and conferred and requested that administrative record and the USDA denied our request. But then it filed a motion to dismiss on a, with a factual challenge. And in support, it cherry-picked certain documents from the administrative record to its benefit. And so not only did we oppose that motion, we filed a separate motion to compel the administrative record saying, hey, we are prejudiced here because the USDA is denying us the record, but then using a sliver of it to its benefit, its uh, motion is claiming that it does not concern the merits of the case, yet it does. 
we need this administrative record to brief these issues. Sweet. Do you have any idea what that, I mean, you didn't get it because the case settled, but do you have any idea what that would have produced? What were you hoping for? You know, it's hard to say what it would have produced, but I think that what we were expecting to find and what would have supported our case theory is documents showing that these rules are binding. And it's key for them to be binding in order for us to prevail in our legislative rule analysis and to tie it all back together. If if these provisions are, in fact, legislative rules, they should have underwent notice and comment rulemaking. Right. Right. All right. So tell us about the settlement negotiations and, and about the result. So we reached a really exciting resolution in this case, and it involved several different items of relief. So first and foremost, we eliminated the self-reporting incentive from the Animal Welfare Inspection Guide. So that incentive is no longer available to licensees. So we're very proud of that. And that's very exciting. Regarding the teachable moments rule, uh, we were able to revise the language of that. But the teachable moments rule does still exist in the Animal Welfare Inspection Guide. But at the same time, we increased transparency by using this settlement as an opportunity to change the animal welfare interface and make it more clear to the public when teachable moments are issued. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. And so the next item of relief is updated inspector training to reflect these changes, as well as $70,000 in attorney's fees and costs. Are there things that they could have used? Did, did the standard for when a teachable moment could be used change? I mean, I know they weren't really following their standards, but but did the standard change so that there were things that they legitimately could use them for before that now would be impermissible? So the way that it's phrased is the guide has a provision saying where teachable moments cannot be used. And the language said something to the effect of when an animal is in noticeable pain and distress. And, you know, we had concern that events could impact animal welfare without manifesting in noticeable pain and distress. And so we swapped out that noticeable pain or distress language and it instead was replaced with a non-compliance adversely impacting the health and well-being of an animal. Okay. I know that they were using them improperly before, or at least you alleged that they were in 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 situations that should not never have been considered teachable moments. Will there be any way to make sure that they are using them properly now, at least according to the uh to the new rule? Improperly employing the teachable moments rule is legally speaking a separate issue than whether or not it was illegally promulgated. I, so at least I see those as separate legal issues. And so if you're a listener on this show and you're in the advocacy space and you're stumbling upon a wrongfully issued teachable moment, please email me. I think my email information will be provided in the show notes because I do have thoughts around uh, a path forward in those instances. But how would somebody find that out? It, it, would it just be by happenstance? Are you hoping that by happenstance that people will come across something that was reported as a teachable moment that they know the facts about? Because is there any way to find out what really happened? 
Yes. Yeah, so when you actually look at the teachable moments, which are now available online, and we can talk more about how they're available online and changes to the interface, um, there is information in that document. And so one can make determinations as to whether or not the teachable moment was improperly applied. And do you know whether the number of teachable moments is going down? Like, are they using them less? That's a great question. And I have not personally done that analysis. Uh, One could certainly do it using uh, the public search tool. Would you expect them to go down um, because the standard is a little tougher? You know, it's really hard to say because the issue is the misapplication of the standard. Uh It's hard for me to say. So tell us, you mentioned that you're going to tell us about the, um, how, how they're available. Uh, Will they be on the inspection reports or are they going to be on the website on on both? Uh, Where can you find them? Okay. Well, so stepping back a moment When we filed this litigation, teachable moments were not available on the public search tool. But thanks to very great work by other advocates, uh, during the pendency of the litigation, teachable moments did become available on the public search tool beginning as of a certain date. Mm -hmm. The wrinkle there is that the teachable moments on the public search tool were stored in a separate repository than the inspection guide documents were stored. And so if you're a stakeholder or an advocate, you would have to query the database twice in two separate ways. So number Uh one, that's extra work. But number two, a lot of people wouldn't know that they have to query a second repository of information. (laughs) That's definitely not obvious. (laughs) Right. One would think the inspection report is the place that would list all violations of law. Now, of course, if you're an expert in the field, you would absolutely know. But for those of us in the public, uh, if you are a pet store subject to liability for the ways that you advertise your animals, if you're a person just getting into the space, you might not realize that there are two separate repositories that need to be queried. And so uh, one thing that we were able to do with this settlement is to make the interface more user-friendly and, and, and more transparent by eliminating the need to query two different repositories. And so if you go into that public search tool and you search the inspection reports, when the results populate, on the right-hand side, there's an interface that summarizes the citation. So it will say the number of direct citations, critical citations. So we added a line. And so it will now also say the number of teachable moments. Okay. And, and those teachable moments are not subject to any temporal restriction. So it should be all teachable moments issued. And if you click on that, do you find out like the substance of the teachable moment, like what it was that they thought was so teachable about it? And so this is where there's still a shortcoming with the online search tool, because when you query the inspection reports and you see our revised interface and you see that teachable moments were assessed, you then need to go into the separate teachable moments repository and query that in order to pull up the teachable moment. 
but we see it as an improvement because at least it's all in one place. And if you don't know what a teachable moment is, you can say like, oh, what's that? There's a couple of them. Like, let me go pursue this. Yeah, they, they're they still working on making it as complicated as possible, though it certainly seems like a big improvement. The reason I'm going into all of these details is because we started this whole discussion talking about these state and local laws that have set requirements on pet store sourcing based on USDA reports. And so do you think this is going to, to affect what information has to be checked by pet stores in order to carry out that obligation? Is it going to make those laws more uh, effective? Well... I would think, you know, it's hard for me to say because I haven't, I haven't chatted with any pet stores, but I will say this. In my own research, I see that pet stores are getting sued for false advertising claims because they're making all sorts of statements that their puppies come from some magical place with rainbows. And the truth of the matter is, if you make such statements, you're subject to liability. And so one would think those stores would really be learning about the database, about the Animal Welfare Act, about these different ways in which violations can be obfuscated, and really make sure that they uh, are publishing advertisements for which they will not be liable and on the hook. I think that's a good point. I mean, obviously, this will be useful for advocates because they'll know what they're doing Mm -hmm. and they'll know how to use this website. But uh, as you point out, if there are these lawsuits against pet stores, and uh, let's hope there are more and more of them, they will have the incentive to also figure this out mm-hmm. and uh, make it work for them. Let's let's hope that happens. I know there's some kind of a three-year limitation. Can you explain what, what that means? Essentially, this settlement imposes obligations on the USDA, and it also provides a meet-and-confer mechanism between the parties. And so there's a time period for which all of this is mandatory. And that's, you know, that's simply because to bind administrations for generations to come is is a concern for the agencies. And so we needed to have some kind of temporal limit. Will there be any hope of getting rid of these nonsensical teachable moments ever? Or is this settlement going to settle how this is going to work and we all just have to figure out how to work with this website? Well, I think there's advocacy is not a single tool. It's a tool set. And so, you know, our litigation is one tool and there's other advocates using other tools. And I think, you know, all of it together is what is going to keep inching this forward. So there were, I know that Professor Delcy Winders for example, is so active in this space. And there's a lot of really smart people that are doing things like uh, using appropriations bills as opportunities to make changes. So I think I can say what I can say is from the cause of action of an illegally promulgated regulation, I think we've done all that we can do using that cause of action. But there's certainly other creative avenues to get at this problem. Yeah. And of course, this is one of many problems with USDA and all of this advocacy will go on. It's just, uh, but it's a big step forward. Before I let you go, I do know you have another case that you are pursuing on behalf of SANE. And this hasn't gotten too far yet. So maybe we can discuss it in more depth down the road. But can you just briefly tell us who you're suing and and kind of basically what you say they're doing? Because I think it's such an interesting case. Yes, I would love to. Thank you for asking. So on behalf of SANE, we're suing my alma mater, the University of Southern California. 
I didn't know you were a graduate. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a fun twist to the case. Um, but so we are suing USC for illegal business practices and animal abuse. Essentially, uh, we are using the unfair competition law as our hook. The unfair competition law prohibits the use of illegal or unfair business practices. And we're saying, hey, USC is systemically violating animal welfare laws, and this constitutes an unfair and illegal business practice. And if you look at the complaint, uh, the details are really, truly horrific. Uh, We're not challenging activities that are approved for an experiment. We're challenging abuse that has absolutely nothing to do with science. So we're talking about, for example, putting live baby animals in a carcass disposal freezer and leaving them in there to slowly freeze to death instead of using the method of euthanasia specified in the relevant protocol. So um, if you read the complaint, it's, it's, not an, it, it, it's not pleasant. There's a lot of really disturbing things happening at USC. And for this case, though, I mean, it's, it's a state case in state court. So the Haven standing doesn't directly apply. But my understanding is your argument that, that it is exactly the same principles for standing under under this California law. And, and you have already litigated the standing issue. Is that right? Yeah, so we overcame a demur and it was very exciting. This, you know, we made headlines when we overcame USC's demur and the judge greenlit our case. And so, absolutely, um, the same basic rubric applies that where a nonprofit organization diverts resources investigating and offsetting illegal conduct, that constitutes an injury in fact. And so since we overcame that demur, we're in the discovery phase of litigation. We incurred a lot of delays due to COVID, but we right now have four different motions to compel discovery pending. Wow. That's very, very exciting stuff. Uh, Getting to the point of discovery is just such a huge step in these cases because so much of this is secret. Great work. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up with you on that case when it, you know, once you've won it. <laughs> and uh, and just tell me, before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your practice. Yeah. So um, Advancing Law for Animals, we're a nonprofit law firm for our non-human friends. And we focus on issues impacting animals in experimentation and industrial food production. I like to think of that as animals commercially bred to die. We're a new organization. I, I still consider us a startup. We are in our third year of full-time operation. That's very exciting. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who will be very intrigued and thinking about uh, such a practice for themselves. So thanks so much for sharing all of this with us, Vanessa. It's been really, really enlightening. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I had so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Vanessa Shakib for taking the time to tell us about all of this work at the USDA and these great developments. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their work in producing the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts and 
If you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at OurHenHouse.org. And I'm just so glad that you tuned in. Please continue to keep yourself safe. <laughs>